Well, after last week, we had a tough uh, topic, scripture verses, and I, I figured I'd have some great theological questions and emails abounding, and I did receive several questions and responses. You know, it was interesting, though, I found out our, the one overriding question out of everything that we covered, there was actually only... It was the only topic. It was concerning the doctrine of sinology. You may not be familiar with sinology. Uh, it's the study of matters related to canines. I don't think I ever finished the story of the puppies last week. And that was most concerning for some of you out there. You know who you are. So I'll finish that story so we can move on to the sermon and you can start listening again. What I was trying to make it clear last week is that uh, by God's divine election, he drew a whole number of people to himself, and those eventually get to see the light of God, and he reveals the gospel, and they believe. They're responsible to believe, and they do. They come to faith in Christ, um, whereas those that never come to Christ, they're, they're of darkness. They don't want to do anything. They don't want anything to do with the light. They run from the light. Well, it was about zero degrees a few years back. I was living in Oklahoma with my wife and daughter, and we had three Great Dane puppies that had been abandoned on the road, and they see the lights of my pickup, and they come running straight towards the vehicle. Uh, the coyotes would run away in darkness. They want nothing to do with light. Once, I'm not saying that dog, all dogs go to heaven, just to be clear. <laughs> but we're certain... No cats go to heaven. Amen? Lock the doors. It's going to be a long day. Anyway, I went ahead and picked up the, the three dogs. We took them back home. My wife made beds out of blankets and, of, and hand warmers, and they were sick, terribly sick. We were able to feed them by God's grace. We kept them warm, and a friend of ours found houses for all three puppies. So they all lived happily ever after. Today we're in John 1.14. Now back to the word. <laughs> Some of you may have thought it's just one verse. This is going to be a short sermon. Au contraire. No, could not go any further than this one verse. Um, the word became flesh. Can you do one sermon on this? We will, but we're going to study this for eternity. As Charles Wesley, who wrote Hark the Herald Angels Sing, he wrote, Veiled in flesh, the Godhead see, hail the incarnate deity. And then Leon Morris, who says, One short shattering expression in which John unveils the very idea that is at the heart of Christianity. How do you define the word became flesh? And what sort of horrible errors and, and heresies can we fall into by not defining it accurately? And the church is pockmarked with these heresies. Well, the term that you might be familiar with, some of you may not be, it's the term hypostatic union. And as I told um, one of the folks on staff here, I said, I mean, pray for me. We're going to be in the deep end of the pool today. And they said, well, we, we look forward to the swim. And I said, well, I hope... I don't accidentally drown you and me both because 
even though John is fairly simplistic in his Greek, he really doesn't delve into the depths that, that Paul does by inspiration of the Spirit. But the concepts in John are so thick and laden with many meanings. And so you have to make sure you're, you're following according to Scripture. Uh, hypostatic union is just one of those terms. Uh, it's, it's the Greek word hypostasis, and it means person or substance. And if you're looking for a good working definition, there you have it. Hypostatic union, it describes the unity of the Son of God's humanity and divinity in one hypostasis, in one person. And what does that look like? And what are the dangers in getting this wrong? We'll see this today. This is going to be a very long introduction. So we eventually will get to the text, but we're going to go kind of dive into several places of the text. And before we do that, we should, I should share with you a little bit of church history. Two weeks ago, we spoke about Arius. Arius was an elder in Alexandria in the second century. He believed many things about Jesus Christ, but he disbelieved Christ's eternality. And he says, and I quote, there was a time when he was not, and he declared that Jesus Christ was the first creation of God. Now, my beloved daughter, Courtney, would come home as a child, and she would have these little arts and crafts things that she brought from school, and she would always describe them as, look, Daddy, look, Mommy, it's my creation. And yeah, oh. And I would have to correct her theologically, honey. Only God can create. No, I didn't. I, I said, oh, that's beautiful. And it was. But the fact is, she knows now, as we all do, we don't actually create anything. We, we put together God's creation into something, but um, only God can create. So what we have here is that Arius was saying, oh, no. Uh, God does create, and he created Jesus. And so Jesus is a creation, not a creator. And that is just completely false. In AD 325, the Council of Nicaea declared that Arianism, named after Arius, was heretical. But there was a problem, if you remember, a couple of weeks ago. It kept growing and growing and growing. And so in the Council of Constantinople in 381, it reaffirmed the Council of Nicaea. This is heresy. Jesus is a creator, God. Well, wasn't he created? No, he wasn't created. He was born, and there's a difference. Um, so if you're wondering, well, I'm so glad we don't have Arianism anymore. Oh, we do. And Arianism often knocks at the door, not of your heart, but of your front door. And it's called Jehovah's Witnesses. Unitarians are also uh, Arians, modern-day Arians. What does Jesus have to say about this? Luke 10, 16, he who rejects me rejects the one who sent me. So you can't somehow say, well, I love God, but Jesus is just a prophet. No, 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 no. You're rejecting Jesus, the son, so you therefore reject the father, which means your eternity is sealed in hell. It's that serious. Doctrine is that serious because it's the teaching of the word of God. So we need to make sure we get things right uh, fifth century, you got a guy named Eutychus. He was an elder in Constantinople, which is in modern-day Istanbul, Turkey. And he, he or his followers, it's hard to tell, came up with this view, that Christ's divine nature ate up his human nature. 
that yes, we have the divine nature and the human nature come together, but which one's more powerful? Well, the divine, of course. So the divine nature ate up his human nature, basically. No, that's completely incorrect. Christ, remember, is just as much human as he is divine. Think about this for a moment. When you get to heaven, you will be worshiping in the feet of a man who has the DNA of Mary, a Jewish woman. How long will you worship him? For eternity. Fascinating to think about. It's not just God, but it's man as well. So what did they do? They called another empire-wide council of the elders, which is what they would do. That's the way that we would handle things in the past. Um, and, and it was helpful. It was very helpful. It came out with something called the Chalcedonian Creed. Don't put that up there yet. Let me tell you one other thing, just to be clear. Councils and creeds do not define Scripture, just to be clear on this. Scripture is the term called self-authenticating. Uh, Martin Luther put it this way, the Bible is like a lion. It does not need to be defended. Just let it loose, and it will defend itself. It's perfect. Um, creeds, uh, to say something about creeds, creeds are okay, but they should never replace the Bible. We should always go back to thus saith the Lord, not thus saith this particular creed or confession. That being said, creeds are okay. The Greek word credo means I believe. And you may say, oh, we don't have creeds here at Grace Church. Oh, really? Have you not seen on our website what we believe, which is the shorter version of our longer document? Yeah. We never place it above Scripture, but it helps us to have a systematic theology of Scripture. So what they did to deal with Eutychus, and uh, they came up with something called the High, uh, Chalcedonian Creed in AD 451. I'm going to go ahead and read it and then talk a little bit about it. Um, and it, I'll kind of commentate as we go. They said this, Therefore, following the Holy Fathers, now just to be clear, the Holy Fathers are not the popes of the past, not at all. Uh, Holy Fathers, these are many times the disciples of the earliest apostles, or, or of the original apostles. We all with one accord teach men to acknowledge one and the same Son, our Lord Jesus Christ, at once complete in Godhead and complete in manhood. The 200% man, if you will. Truly God and truly man, consisting also of a reasonable soul and body, not Two bodies, not two souls, but one soul, one body, one person. Of one substance with the Father as regards his Godhead, and at the same time of one substance with us as, as regards his manhood. Like us in all respects apart from sin, as regards his Godhead begotten of the Father before the ages, but yet as regards his manhood begotten for us men in our salvation. Stop there. Did they just repeat themselves? Are we talking about begotten eternally and begotten of Mary? Uh, it's the latter. And we're going to look at that a little bit later today, if you're still with me and you haven't left. Continuing on, Mary the Virgin, the God-bearer, one and the same, Christ, Son, Lord, only begotten, recognized in two natures, without confusion, without change, without division, without separation. We'll study that in a moment. Uh, the distinction of nature's being in no way annulled by the union, but rather the characteristics of each nature being preserved and coming together to form one person. 
and subsistence, not as parted or separated into two persons, but one in the same Son and only begotten God, the Word, Lord Jesus Christ. Now, this is important. Even as the prophets from earliest times spoke of him and our Lord Jesus Christ himself taught us. What are they saying? They're saying we're getting this from Scripture. We're not just making this up. It has to be tied to Scripture completely. And the creed of the fathers has handed down to us. Once again, we're getting this straight from the, from the very beginning here. So what does all this mean? Well, we're not going to exegete or explain all of this. It's just to point out a few things as we go straight into what does it mean the word became flesh? And what is this hypostatic union? God and man and one person. And if you think about that, Jeff, didn't you say 200% person? Some of you are automatically going, that's not possible. And I would say, good, you're tracking with me. Because with man, it is impossible. With God, all things are possible. Kevin DeYoung, Presbyterian, um, a good, good guy, he wrote about hypostatic union, and he writes about these four withouts, without confusion, without change, without division, without separation. When we say without confusion, that is not blue plus yellow equals green. No, there's no confusion in Jesus. He didn't know who he was when he woke up from day to day. No, no. Uh, without change, uh, there's a view out there that says that, you know, I'm so drawn to the God of the New Testament, Jesus, but the God of the Old Testament seems harsh. That is a bad, bad heresy. Not saying that some heresies are nice, but that one is especially bad because, no, Jesus, the Son of God, pre-incarnate, post-incarnate, same person, although he took on flesh, as we see. He will also say, what do you do with uh, with, without division. Well, what you don't see is what some of you may have actually hold to, is that Jesus is actually half God and half man. That is a heresy. That was condemned early on. It's completely false. Jesus didn't lose any of his godness or his humanity. No, he's, he's both in one person. And finally, uh, he'll talk about without uh, without separation. That means the Son of God was, he, it was a real organic union. Jesus was not Frankenstein walking around with different parts, deity and humanity. No, it was organic. He looked like one of us. So why do, why do we have to be so exact? Some of you that are kind of drawn to just, let's just love one another. Let's just kind of follow the Bible the best we can. Why are you being so exact on this? Because there are so many heresies out there in the early church and in the 21st century. What happens, you end up, if you don't get this right, you end up worshiping a false god. We have area churches in Dallas-Fort Worth and everywhere else that it's false. Uh, modalism is common in uh, denominations called oneness Pentecostals. Just to be clear, I'm not referring to all Pentecostals. I'm talking about oneness Pentecostals. They would say, Oh, yes, God is one, and there's no three persons of the Trinity. There's just one. So what they believe is that uh, God the Father created the universe, and when he decided to save the world, he morphed himself into a baby in Mary's womb and became man. And then once he went back to heaven, he morphed himself again into what? Holy Spirit. 
That's heretical. You can't deny certain persons of the Trinity and expect to still be a believer in Jesus Christ. No. And so that's a problem. But also, it may not just be worshiping a false god. You might just end up with really bad doctrine. You're still a believer, but your doctrine is not so hot. Like, dare I say it, Hillsong Worship. Came out with a real popular song, and the song is not all bad, just to be clear. But they wrote, the song was called, What a Beautiful Name. Some of you go, oh, that's my favorite song. Well, it's nothing personal. It's just one of the lines in there just sticks me funny, and I hope it sticks you funny, where, where the, the song goes like this. You didn't want heaven without us. Which, let's just be clear, that is true. God does want heaven filled with his people. Jesus praises in John 17, 24, that we would behold his glory, so be there. But that phrase, you don't want heaven without us, it smacks of a lonely, needy God. It may not be false, but it certainly is misleading to think that God is motivated by some deficiency in him. God wants us in heaven with him, to be clear. God loves us. But the goal is what? To glorify God. That ultimately, at the end of the day, he wants us in heaven to worship him, to glorify him. And certainly the authors of that song would, would agree with that, I believe. Um, it's just helpful. We need to be more exact because we served a very exact, perfect God. So why did God become man? As we look into this verse, world, like the word became flesh. I'm not asking why did God save us? The Bible's chock full with verses about that, but why did he become man to do it? Uh, Anselm in the 12th century wrote a book called um, uh, Cur Deus Homo, which means why God man? He doesn't answer that question. He looks to scripture to answer that question. So I'll give you these six, and then we're almost to the verse. Uh, number one, it would be to bring man to God, 1 Peter 3, 18. Uh, thus saving us from the wrath of God. There's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And that was the way that God chose to do it, uh, to bring man to God. Number two, it was to be able to die as the perfect sacrifice. You may not have thought about this before, but God cannot die. And yet, how does he somehow make the perfect sacrifice? Well, he, he sends the Son of God to the world that can be born a man and yet still be God. And we find 1 Timothy 2.15, there is one mediator between God and man, the man, Christ Jesus. God had to make a way, and the only way to do the perfect sacrifice is God had to become man. Number three, to be a sympathetic high priest. Hebrews 2.17, Hebrews 4, it says he had to be made like his brothers in every way except without sin, in order that he may become a sympathetic high priest. If you and I were living in Old Testament Israel and we were to go uh, bring our uh, sheep and uh, they'd slit its throat and drain the blood, and it would be helpful in some ways to come to the priest who's not perfect, but he's very sympathetic to our own sins because he himself has been tempted in the same way. Sometimes you'd even have really wicked priests and you've, you've maybe you felt really good going to him. But we serve a perfect high priest without sin, but tempted in every way. 
So he knows the temptations and the trials that we go through. He himself went through the same things. Number four, to be an example for us to follow in his steps. That's an exact quote, in his steps. Christ, the perfect example. Of course, we can always follow the example of the Lord, God, had he not come to the earth, but how sweet is that he became like one of us. So we follow in his steps. Number five, to destroy the works of the devil, 1 John 3, 8. We could have a whole study on that, but suffice it to say that it was important for God to beat Satan on his own home field where he first led men into sin. It was important for God to do it here on the earth and he would destroy the works of the devil ultimately one day. And number six, to further reveal God to man. We will see that next week, that Jesus is the final um, revelation of God. There's nothing after him. And for those people that are just interested, we should look at one last thing before with the text. Although Israel expected a Messiah, should they have expected God to show up in the flesh? Have you wondered that? They're expecting their Messiah, but did they ever expect it to be God? Well, Genesis 3.15, we know from the very beginning that Eve's seed shall bruise your head, meaning Satan's head. It'll be a death blow, and you shall bruise his heel, which would be, which, so we find out from the very beginning that the Redeemer to come would be, uh, would suffer, but ultimately he would win the day. Do we find out he's deity then? No, Adam and Eve have no idea. But you do have a couple of references in Scripture that, that alludes to that. Of course, you've got more. I'll just look at two of them. 2 Samuel seven thirteen, when God tells David, I will establish the throne of his kingdom. And for how long? Forever. Man doesn't live forever. Of course, he does in heaven. So maybe there's an illusion there that one of these days, the Messiah here is going to be just not just your average Joe, if you will. That's very clear in Isaiah 9, 6, when it talks about his name shall be called Mighty God. Okay, that should be a clear sign. This is something different. And the increase of his government will have no end, that the Messiah would not just be man, he would be God. So why were the Jews so confused when Jesus came upon the scene, the perfect man, the God-man? Well, they remember the servant of the Lord spoken about in Isaiah 42 and 49 and 50, but they didn't know what to do by and large with Isaiah 53, that the same servant of the Lord, quote unquote, servant of the Lord was what they called the Messiah, which is referred to in Isaiah. He is also a man of sorrows, acquainted with grief, uh, and it pleased the Lord to crush him. How can this be the Messiah? How can this be the man. So my point, although Israel expected a Messiah, should they have expected God to show up in the flesh? I don't think so. They didn't have enough, but they certainly had hints in the Old Testament. Now, let's take a look at verse 14. The word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glory as of the only son from the father, full of grace and truth. The word became flesh. Once again, the son of God was born but he is the creator being born. Um, it's interesting, the Holy Spirit could have written, the word became man. Why did he say flesh? What's the reason for that? Well, it does not mean sinful flesh, as Paul oftentimes uses the word flesh, is in a sinful way. Uh, the Holy Spirit here wants to show us in descriptive language 
as one of the commentators states, how far God stoops to save man. Because when you see flesh many times in the Old Testament, it's this, um, it's this idea of creaturely weakness. We are but flesh. Uh, sometimes you ever wash something at the sink and you cut your finger and you're like, <sighs> bleeding everywhere. You find out you're just flesh. I mean, it's paper thin. Well, it's not just referring to the, the epidermis. It's referring to your whole body when it says Jesus became flesh. But note what it, when I say creaturely weakness, what it says about flesh in the Old Testament. Psalm 78, 39, he remembered that they were but flesh, a wind that passes and comes not again. Isaiah 40, verse six, all flesh is grass and all its beauty is like the flower of the field. Grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God lasts forever. But we are flesh at best. And that is exactly what Jesus became. So we should remember here, folks, that John, the reason why he's so clear, I think there's also a historical reason. John is fighting the docetists. And you say, Jeff, that's too many terminologies. I gave you that one a couple weeks ago, docetists. It's the Greek word dokeo, that Jesus only seemed to be God. That's the word dokeo. I mean, he only seemed to be God. He kind of floated on top of the earth. But he really wasn't man because for them... Nothing could be worse than that. You see, the docetists are okay with God looking like a man, but to become a man, never. And the reason why is because they, are, they believed in dualism. They're dualist. Let me give you just a good working definition for that. According to Dr. Bingham, one of my favorites at Dallas Seminary, here it is. Spirit good, body bad. This is the way the Greeks and the Romans looked at it. Spirit, good, body, bad. And so for death was, was a horrible thing, but finally you're done with that body of yours. Um, no, the Bible put them together, according uh, to the Bible, he put them together and he called them very good. Uh, by the way, be careful lest we judge the Greeks and Romans. We also tend to be dualists if we're not careful about it. We tend to split Jesus down the middle. Give you an example. When you see Jesus asleep in the boat, you think, oh, that is that, that's Jesus, the man asleep in the boat. No, no, no. What if I were to say this? God is asleep in the boat. Does that mess with your head? Then you may be flirting with dualism more than you realize. Or how about this one? Is it just baby Jesus, uh, the baby boy born that Christmas night? Or is that, is that God being born that Christmas night? You see, dualism comes out in other areas for us, including funerals. Dr. Bingham would speak about this. If you will, I'm the oh, person running the, officiating the funeral, and I look at Mary down here laying in the coffin. That's Mary lying before us today. Yet that is not Sister Mary. She's in heaven rejoicing with Jesus. Instead, what's lying before you today is nothing more than the shell of Mary. That's actually not good doctrine fully. I mixed some great doctrine with some falsities. Now, certainly Mary, this made up person, is in heaven and conscious with Jesus. Yes, better to be with the Lord without the body as Paul talked about. But to be clear, that's Mary. 
And so the way it works is that when a person dies, the soul is ripped from the body. Now that sounds oh so harsh, but that is part of the curse that we all live under. And God in his kindness uh, creates death as a way to eternal life for only the believers. But make no mistake about it, Mary is, is with Christ, but Mary is here too. Not conscious, the body's asleep. But to refer to Mary as the shell or maybe the earth suit, as some people may have referred to, it's not biblical. Why is it so important? Because God loves the body. And he one day is going to bring the body and soul back together again. When people are baptized here, they're baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. When he died, you died. When he rose, you rose. And you go, yes, I'm risen, spiritually speaking. But when I look at my hands and I see new lines on my face, that's later. The body will be raised, perfect, immortal one day. But ladies and gentlemen, be careful that you don't fall into some sense of dualism. Jesus Christ came here as a man, as a baby. He was raised. He, had, he went through the terrible teenage years. Nothing personal here. But those junior high years, you don't look, you know, you don't miss as much. He went through all of those things. And yet without sin. So he dwelt among us. That term dwelt among us, it's, it's phraseology that refers to like a, a tent. Um, and really that is the Greek word he he tented among us. He, he tabernacled among us, which the tabernacle was the tent in the Old Testament where they would worship God. God is showing us his future self in the person of Jesus Christ by means of the tabernacle. If you start reading through the, the five books of the Old Testament and you get to the, the, the place that you're reading about the tabernacle and you go, can we just kind of skip through here? Don't do that. God is showing you himself foreshadowing. Let me just go through these quickly. The bronze altar for sacrifice and also the bronze laver for cleansing. That's Jesus, the picture of Christ cleansing us from sin one day. The table of showbread, Christ, the bread of life. The gold lampstand that was kept burning, that is Christ, the light of the world. The altar of incense, uh, that is where you would put the incense and it would it would go up into heaven. Incense was seen as the prayers either of the saints or in this particular case, the picture of prayer that Christ himself intercedes for us. We have the Ark uh, of the Covenant. Uh, a guy named Stephen Cole mentions this. I think he, he may be onto something. Ark of the Covenant made of wood but covered in gold, perhaps showing us the two natures of Jesus Christ, human and divine. The mercy seat where the blood was sprinkled, certainly that is a picture of where Christ poured out his blood for us on the cross. And then inside the ark, you'd have three objects, if you remember them. One is the Ten Commandments, the Mosaic Covenant, and Christ fulfilled the law, how well for us? Perfectly. We have the jar of manna, that's where they had the bread that they would keep. They kept that one jar that God says, let's keep this as a memorial. It wasn't just a memorial. It's Christ, a picture of Christ, the living bread from heaven, our daily bread. And then finally, Aaron's budded rod. If you remember that story of Korah's rebellion, um, all the different tribal heads put their staff in there to determine which one is the chosen one of God, who is the chosen ruler and priest of God, and God sets apart 
Aaron's rod. And notice this, it buds, it blooms, and then it even produces almonds. <laughs> what would that have been like? What is God showing you? That rod of Aaron that is just an old stick of wood in essence is resurrected. It becomes alive. And that's a picture of Christ, what he did for us. So 1 Kings 8, 27, Solomon dedicates the simple, the, the temple rather. And he says, will God indeed dwell on the earth? Behold, heaven and the highest heavens cannot contain you. How much less this house that I have built? Yes. How much more that it, the, the glory of God would not just be in a building, but it would come to set within a man. It says, we have seen his glory. That Greek word seen, it's theaomai. It's where we get our word theater. It means to observe intently. When you look at the movie screen, you're trying to figure this one out. You're, you're interpreting, you're grasping its significance. That's the term used here. We have, we have seen it. Hebrews 1.3, it says, Christ is the radiance of God's glory. And now maybe you're questioning, well, isn't the glory of God that Old Testament cloud, the Shekinah that's set above the tabernacle and later upon the temple? And we would say, yes, that is the manifestation of God upon the earth. And yet now the glory of God no longer housed in a building, but in a man, in a baby boy born and put in a manger in Bethlehem. John saw this perhaps um, kind of a, a picture, a snapshot of this uh, glory at the Mount of Transfiguration. He and James and Peter saw it, and they fell to the ground. So just imagine if you one day or when you actually see Christ in glory, what's that going to look like? Well, Peter, James, and John just fell, and that's probably a good place for all of us. Glory as of the only Son from the Father. Uh, that is that Greek word monogenes. Monogenes. It's defined in two different ways. And if you're lost by the end of this explanation, I'll explain it again here in another couple of weeks. Monogenes, uh, many of you have, it, do, it says glory as of the only. Um, it can be translated as only or unique, one of a kind. Uh, but it, what's interesting is that that's probably what most people have in your Bibles but that actually was promoted by theologians in the mid-20th century. It's actually not, it's not typical. The Greek word can certainly be translated that way, but it can also be translated only begotten. Theologians will oftentimes call this the eternal generation of the Son. Uh, generation means coming forth. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son. Many of you have memorized that old translation. I say old because modern day translations, not many of them have it. It's used in the King James, and I'm not an only King James guy, but it's a good translation. The 1995 New American Standard has that phrase, only begotten. New King James has it. The Legacy Standard has it. So what does begotten mean? Anybody in here that's, that has been begotten before? Oh, really? There's only a few of you. Wow. So the rest of you just kind of appeared I was begotten. What, you're like, well, what does it mean? Well, it means you were born. You were born. I think all of you are begotten. If not, I'm leaving now. So what does begotten mean? It means to be born. Is this referring to the little old town of Bethlehem and Mary? No. 
it actually could be referring to eternity past. Now stay with me here. It's always been begotten until about the 1950s, some of our translations changed. I'm not, once again, I'm not saying one and only son is an incorrect translation. That could be right. But the earliest church fathers in the fourth century used the phrase only begotten. So why did it change? Well, in the mid-50s, there was a single journal article by Dale Moody called Journal of Biblical Literature. And his translation of John 3.16 in the Revived Standard Version is, is one and only son. And so if you were to open up, if you go to Dallas Seminary or someplace else and you were to open up a BDAG, I know I'm giving you a lot of terms today, stay with me. Uh, BDAG is the Greek English lexicon. You look up monogenes, and the first article you'd come to would be this one. And he tries to make the point that no, it's meant to be one and only instead of eternally begotten. Um, so, which one is it? I don't know. I think eternally begotten is right. But let me, ex- if some of you go, well, that's outside the box for me. Well, stay with me. Question, did Jesus become the son of God when he went, when he was sent to the earth? Or is that title eternal? Was he always the son of God? I think it's eternal. I don't think that title's new when he became uh, a son of Mary. Uh, another question, did the Holy Spirit become the Holy Spirit when he arrived at Pentecost? Or was that title eternal? I think it's eternal. Where are you coming up with this, Jeff? Well, Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. So I think he's always been the son of God. I know, well, we know that. Has he always been titled the son of God? I think he has. So why is this important? Well, I think it's just interesting because it fits what's going on here in this text. You see, when you consider it like this, we all have been begotten of God. And at a particular time, we all have been begotten of God. But the Son of God was begotten from eternity past. If you're looking for a good article on this, Denny Burke, uh, he's a professor at Southern Seminary. He was one of my Greek professors. He's a sharp guy. He writes about this, dennyburke.com. Don't look it up now. And John, monogenes is found in John 1.14, 1.18, John 3.16, and 1 John 4.9. I can't give you undisputed view, uh, proof that this is the right view, but I will tell you John 5, 26, where it says, Jesus says, just as the Father has given life, that's referring to eternal life, in himself, even so he gave to the Son also to have life in himself. Question, when did the Father give the Son eternal life? Did that happen at his birth in Bethlehem, or was that eternity past? I think it's eternity past. Now, let me answer a couple of questions and we'll finish this up. Um, With eternal generation, with this view that Jesus is only begotten, meaning eternally begotten, does that still make him equal with God? Oh, certainly it does. We don't believe in some sort of crazy subordinationism where Jesus is way down here and the Spirit's here. No, 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 all equal. Secondly, is, is this, um, with the eternal generation, is the Son of God still equal with the, uh, I already answered that, sorry, you got that one right. If the Son of God is born, how can he be just as eternal as God the Father, right? I mean, if he's eternally begotten, eternally born, how, 
One has got to go in front of the other. I mean, you would think that. How do you answer that? Well, I like the way Augustine answers it. He says, show me and explain to me an eternal father. And I will show you and explain to you an eternal son. Answer, not going to give it. The Bible doesn't give it. So eternally begotten, but also begotten son of Mary as well. I think that's what scripture is saying. Now, you can disagree with that, and that's completely fine, but I will say this. It's always been translated that way until mid-20th century. That's what Westminster Confession agrees with. That's what the London Baptist Confession agrees with. That's what all the councils of the church held to. And just to ask the question, who do you think who knew Koine Greek better? 21st century theologians or 4th century that were actually speaking Koine Greek? I'd go with the latter. Well, we're out of time. Um, but I will conclude with this. It was full of grace and truth. Full of grace and truth. Question, did full of grace and truth begin with Jesus or was the Old Testament law, did it have some grace or was it all just law? No, no, it began at the fall. The Lord gave our first parents grace. He gave them animal skins and put off their physical death for years. He also gave them truth. You're gonna leave the garden forever but I'm gonna send a redeemer. How about at the time of Israel? Um, when Israel was at Mount Sinai, what is the truth? The truth, here's the law. Here's the grace. You're gonna break that law even as I'm giving the law to Moses and you're gonna make a golden calf. Here's the grace. I'm not gonna kill every single one of you. As a matter of fact, I'm gonna write it out again and I'm gonna give it to Moses again. That's truth, that's grace. If grace and truth were active in the Old Testament, do you think there's any left for us by the time we get to the New Testament? Oh, no. Full of grace and truth. That's Jesus Christ. If you do not know the Lord, uh, the God who became a man to die for sins, purchasing a bride and saving a people for himself from the wrath of God, would you consider him today? See, that's, that's the reason for the celebration of the season. He came to the earth born of a Jewish maiden, poor, and yet the light of God literally coming from her womb into the world to save a people for himself. Bible says that one day at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And I would tell you today, I don't know about you, but I would rather bow and confess as a beloved child of the King rather than be forced to pay homage to him as an enemy while on the way to the lake of fire. Gospel is this. I'm looking at dead people if you're not in Christ today. You're a sinner. Sin is anything you think, say, or do that's displeasing to the Lord. The wages of sin, the payment of sin is death. You're gonna go to hell for eternity. It's nothing personal. It's just true. But God in his own grace sent his son Jesus Christ into the world to die for sinners. But while we are still sinners, Christ died for us. And three days later, after living the perfect life, giving himself up on the cross, he dies, lays down his life for the sins of the world. Three days later, it's like God looks down and says, there's my beloved son. There's salvation in no one else, for there's no other name under heaven given by men by which we must be saved. Your good works will damn you today. Christ Jesus is the only way to the Father, and he came for you.
Will you celebrate with us this Christmas? Will you celebrate the Lord's Supper with us today? You can by trusting him and him alone. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this day. We thank you for the repentance found in Christ, the faith found in Christ, the new birth found only in Christ. Lord, we pray that you would help us as we celebrate this time of Lord's Supper, that we would celebrate it well and realize that you, your son, did not stay a baby, but was born, lived the perfect life we could never live, and died on the cross, cruel cross, Lord, giving it up for us all, for the glory of God. Lord, help us to remember that today as we eat the bread and the cup. In your son's name we pray it, amen.